Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Patrick Jory. I teach Southeast Asian history at the University of Queensland, Australia, and I'm co-host of this channel. When people think of the Vietnam War, they usually think of this hugely devastating and divisive conflict between North Vietnam and a United States-backed South Vietnam that finally ends in 1975. But we know much less about the early conflicts, often referred to as the First Indochina War from 1946 to 1954, which ended almost a century of French colonial rule and brought about the division of the country into North and South Vietnam. In his new book, The First Vietnam War, Sovereignty and the Fracture of the South, 1945 to 1956, Jean McHale examines this early conflict, focusing on the complex and diverse society of South Vietnam. The book begins with a provocative question. Why did the communist-led resistance against French colonial rule in Vietnam fail in the South? This is an exhaustively researched book which does a lot to change our understanding of how South Vietnam became independent and also helps explain what came after the end of this first Vietnam War. Sean McHale is Professor of Southeast Asian History at the Columbian College of Arts and Sciences at George Washington University. Sean, thanks for coming on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. I I learned so much from your book. It's a pleasure to be here. This is such a rich book, uh, and there's so much I want to ask you about it. But before I do, we always like to ask authors to tell the listeners a little bit about themselves. How did you become interested in Vietnam and why Vietnamese history in particular? And perhaps also, can you tell us why you think an understanding of history is important to understanding Southeast Asia? Uh, sure. The, the the background answer to that is that I was born in Southeast Asia. I was born in Malaysia, and I also spent almost four and a half years living in rural Philippines. I lived on the island of Negros in the Philippines, which is a uh, sugar-producing area. So I've lived in urban areas, I've lived in rural areas, but I guess the most important thing I sort of want to convey is that many of my earliest memories are Southeast Asia and the earliest tastes, many of my favorite foods. Uh, so Southeast Asia, in that sense, has been part of me uh, you know, since birth. Why Vietnam? Ironically, many of us, we want to do something different than our parents. My father was an economist and businessman in Southeast Asia, working on Malaysia and then the Philippines. I want to do something different. And so uh, it was sort of accidental. I happened to be interested in Southeast Asia. I decided that I would study some other country. 
I knew French already because I'd lived in France for a year with a, with a French family. And for not the best reasons, perhaps, uh, I, I thought, oh, okay, I'll, I'll learn Vietnamese. And I found a fellowship to learn Vietnamese. And that started <laughs> my, my, my trek into, in, into Vietnamese history. And I've uh, certainly never regretted it uh, in the least. Okay, before we get into the detail of the book, can you give the listeners a brief general overview of what you've tried to do in the book? Yes, the the book is in some sense uh, contrarian, but it's also an attempt to fill a a large gap, as you suggested uh, uh, in your introduction. Not as much is known about the uh, First Indochina War. And so, in fact, and not much is known about it in particular in the South. And this seems to be a, you know, a, a, a gap. And I, that's what, and in fact, I, I was thinking of that. In my first book, I had done research on the Mekong Delta, for, in particular for a chapter of, of, of my book on Buddhism. And I thought, huh, I will go and I'll bring my cultural knowledge, cultural background to bear on the study of you know this, the, the conflict for the South, but I also had already decided that I wanted to tackle a sort of a big topic. Running through this entire book is the theme of violence and trying to understand violence. And what's odd about the the wars for Vietnam is that we talk a lot about violence. A lot of violence occurs both under the French and especially during the the, the American period of intervention. But there's not been a lot of analysis of how violence breaks out. And in particular, what is violence like, you know, at not just from the national level or regional level, but down to the level of the village. So what is violence? How does it break out? And in particular, how do dynamics of violence, uh, you know, form? And how do those dynamics of violence then shape, in a sense, the conflict that goes forward from then on? And so in the book, I have two bookends, you know, introduction and a conclusion, and then two large sections in the middle. And in, in the introduction, the framing chapter, I look at issues of violence, sovereignty, and, and institutional collapse. But in the first major section of the book, I then turn to look at what I call, you know, fracture, which is the way in which the South, the Vietnamese and um, inhabitants of the South move from a general sort of anti-French position into a complete fracturing of the political uh, landscape and even ethnic landscape. So the book, although it starts before 1945, a key point is the August General Uprising or August Gen- uh, Revolution of 1945. And that uprising in, began in the north and then it, it rippled down to the center and then to the south. From there on, I then dig into the the way in which that initial moment of, of uprising, a common belief uh, of Vietnamese uh, in particular coming together in a fragile unity against actually the, the opponent, the, the French who are coming back into French Indochina. Uh, how would that play out? By 1947, this fragile unity had, had completely blown apart. But really, it hadn't just blown apart in terms of the Vietnamese, there was what I call a double fracture. There was a political fracture among the Vietnamese who broke into more pro-communist and non-communist wings, and that really came to head in 1947. But there also was an ethnic fracture, one in which Vietnamese and ethnic Khmer broke with each other. And this last fracture has not really been talked about much in the scholarship. There are some people who've done work on it, like uh, Philip Taylor, 
who has has worked on the 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 Khmer of the Delta, and a few others. But generally speaking, this is not a topic which you see in the Vietnamese language scholarship at all, the French or the English. And so, okay. if so, sorry, Sean, to interrupt there, but if I could just pull you back just a little bit, and we'll we'll come on to those topics uh, in in a minute. But I was wondering if for the historians amongst our listeners. Could you tell us how you went about researching the book, the source materials that you used, because it's a very, very rich book, the archives you visited, people you talked to, and these kinds of things in producing this book? There is a wealth of material that I found you know, to, for this book, and I did a lot of my initial research in Vietnam in the Vietnamese archives. And the Vietnamese archives are sometimes difficult to access. The government doesn't always want people to see things about ethnic violence and religious violence and so on and so forth. And so I supplemented that with work in in France, uh, particularly in the French military archives, which have a lot of material which has not really been extensively used except by a few scholars like uh, Chris Gosha. And then, strangely enough, I found material in Cambodia. You'd think that the Cambodian archives would be a disaster after the Pol Pot years, but it turns out that they, even they have some uh, Vietnamese language materials that were very important. So those three sets of materials were key. And I've also traveled around the, the Mekong Delta to give a sense of place to uh, some of where I'm doing my research. When we, it strikes me, think of the conflict in Vietnam, we think of these really big overarching uh, political ideas, colonialism, nationalism, and communism. And these themes are, of course, in your book. But really, it seems to me that the central theme of your book is the diversity and complexity of South Vietnam at the local level. Could you perhaps talk a little bit about that? Yes, I'll add a little bit about the end of the uh, the, the war from 47 to 54, and then, and then go back to that question. The fracture that happens, I talked about earlier, that fracture it blew apart the uh, the political landscape and institutional landscape. But then the question is what would happen after that? And, and the communists tried to to make a, a, a very reasonable kind of, you know, attempt to go back and, and learn from mistakes and then and seize power. But so did a bunch of other groups. And in the end, you know, the communists, I argue, lost that struggle, which is a, an argument you never hear in Vietnam. The interesting issue is that if we reorient our attention to the war. We, we, we don't think of it in terms of national level politics so much, or, or even parties. We, we, we go down to the rural level. We go down to the provinces. We ask ourselves, what was actually happening there? And here, a different picture emerges. It's very interesting because there are lots of militias. There are self-defense forces. There are militias. Some militias are small. Some actually are much larger. I make the argument that some militias are so large that they eventually turn into uh, parastates. Uh, there's the Communist Party. You have the Kaudai. You have the Huahau. You have all these different groupings. And the question is, for the historian, is how do you take a very complicated situation and, and explain it to, to an audience? And this indeed is, was very tricky because you have, and in the end, what I came up with, the way I thought through it is, you really do have some, a few dominant parastates, uh, one Hua Hao, uh, one Kao Dai, and then, and then arguably, the, the, and then also the communists. And around them sort of circled or became allied with all sorts of smaller uh, militias. And this, this situation, you know, it, it changed as, as, as time went on, as, as some groups uh, became stronger, some groups became weaker. 
And behind all of it were the French. The French were playing a game of sort of like they were too weak to seize power in the countryside, but they were strong enough to be able to give money and arms to the different groupings. And so de facto, what happened is that the French devolved power to these rural uh, men of violence. One of the things I really liked about the book is that you kind of depict the French in the South not as a principal protagonist, but just almost as another fighting force, albeit one that's very well resourced, you know, along with, as you say, the Kaldai, the Wahal, the, the Khmer, which we'll get onto in a minute, the, you know, the Catholic militias that you talk about and so on, and of course, the Viet Minh as well. And Another surprise is, is about the French colonial army itself. It, it, it is also in itself very diverse. Could you perhaps say something about the, the makeup of, of the, the French forces? Yeah, the, the French are, are interesting. It's, it's in the interest of the, of the Communist Party today, Communist-led party state, to sort of emphasize how, how strong the French were, uh, because that way you want to focus on how much you can topple them, and you toppled a very strong foe. Especially at the beginning, though, of the war, the French weren't that strong at all. They'd just come out of uh, World War II. They, it, was a, it was actually a poor, poor military. And for the first two years, they only wanted white soldiers for reasons of, they thought, of prestige. But in 1947, they realized this was not working. And so they essentially recruited from throughout the empire. And you, you had most of the soldiers who fought in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia on the on the French side were not French nationals. French nationals were in the minority. And so you had Senegalese, you had, you had people from Guinea, you had people from Morocco, Algeria. You also had former people who had been in countries under the Third Reich, so Hungary, you know, Germany, of course, but in all sorts of people. I eventually counted up 60 different political units that belonged to the militaries that the, the French uh, military that was in, that was fighting in Vietnam. One particular um, issue, though, is that the French were constantly trying to send soldiers to the center in the north, where the need was the greatest. And so they kept on taking regular uh, soldiers in the, in the French Expeditionary Corps and basically sending them north, sending them, sending them north. And so the end result was that there weren't very many French fighting a war in the south. Most of the French were in, this, were in the north. So the south had probably the smallest number of, of soldiers under the French, including the including you know Senegalese and Guinean and so on and so forth. And in contrast, it had the most people who were what the French call supplétifs. They were actually paramilitary forces, self-defense forces. So the character of the war in the south was, was very, very different. Another theme of the book, central theme of the book, is the, you mentioned it earlier, the role of the Khmer minority in South Vietnam, the so-called Khmer Krom. And you write a lot about the, this violence between the Khmer and the Vietnamese in the South, which has been you know, largely overlooked in the, the histories of the first Indochina war. And you talk about the roots of, of, this, of this enmity between the two groups. So I was wondering if you could perhaps discuss that a little. It's an interesting and it's a it's an overlooked topic. And and in fact, when I first started looking into it, I, like most people in Vietnamese studies, thought that the the Khmer Krom's argument about the Delta was perhaps a little bit overwrought. And, and as time went on, I came to realize that no, I mean the Khmer Krom they were the original inhabitants of the Mekong Delta when 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 the Vietnamese first poured into the Delta. There already were some Chinese there, and they were Khmer. And so this was their land. Now, in the 19th century, 
what had been once a majority, an area majority, certainly non, non-Vietnamese, uh, became overwhelmed with, you know, waves and waves of Vietnamese coming to settle this, this land, which Vietnamese usually call a sort of uncleared land. It's a narrative which is much like the when the Americans talk about the West, sort of the empty West, which wasn't empty at all. So these groupings there were the Khmer Krom, the Khmer of the Delta, were tied to Cambodia because you know if you look at if you just look at a map, you notice that the Mekong River it flows in a northwest southeast direction, and so they would go up. Sometimes their connections were more logically to other Cambodians than they were to any part of, a, of Vietnam. They also, Cambodia had sovereignty claims. Cambodia itself had sovereignty claims to the Delta. And the Cambodians uh, say again and again, they say the, the French promised us. They promised us control of the uh, of the delta, or they promised us a few several provinces, or they promi- promised us navigation rights, things like that. And we don't really, I've never been able to find the actual document giving, giving that promise, but it's persistent among Cambodians in Cambodia. And so you ended up with a situation where by 1945, this particular sovereignty claim or sovereignty clash between ethnic Vietnamese and Cambodians hadn't been resolved. So there really is an interesting issue here. And it was only resolved when France decided to take Cochin China, which was a directly ruled colony, and give it to the new state of Vietnam. That was the so-called resolution of the sovereignty claim. So it's actually a very interesting story. You know, you could argue, well, some groups lose in history. And so this particular belief is it's not uncommon among Khmer uh, of the Delta. They know this history. And so I think of it as a sad conflict between two incommensurate uh, sovereignties. It's a fascinating theme that weaves all the way through the book, and it really helped me understand the situation yeah, a lot better than I ha- had done. If we could get back to the, the theme of violence, which is another central theme in, in the book. So you give a lot of attention to the, the extreme violence in the South following Japan's defeat in 1945, and you write about the frequent massacres on all sides, as far as I can see, the use of torture and you know horrible things like disemboweling and mutilating bodies to terrorise the local population. Why, it, why was the, the violence in the South at that time so visceral? The, the violence there, I think you can look at it in two different ways, depending on whether it's the ethnic violence, Khmer versus Vietnamese, or whether it's uh, just among Vietnamese. For the Khmer and the Vietnamese, there were these long-standing antipathies, uh, in part because, for a variety of reasons, including the fact that Vietnamese had moved into lands and often taken over lands which belonged to the, uh, the Khmer Krong. And so there was a, this antagonism, but it never broke out into major rebellions during most of the time that the French ruled the South, Cochin China. Ironically, it was incited by the French when they, when, when they gave weapons to, to the Khmer Krom, they had them go after uh, Vietnamese who were resisting French attempt to reassert control over the countryside. So that started a dynamic of Khmer Vietnamese violence, which was very brutal. Uh, memories of that have lasted for, you know, for decades, uh, if not more. On the Vietnamese side, this is an interesting issue as well. Why is it that Vietnamese who 
under French colonial rule, it did not go about disemboweling people, for example. What exactly happened? And some of what I uh, what I actually think is speculative. I mean, I do think that uh, World War II had a general tendency to make people more um, more likely to to sort of engage in different practices of violence. But I, I think part of it does come down to the fact that when an existing administration or governmental structure collapses. And this is what happened with both the French one and then the Japanese one in 1945. It becomes a free-for-all. And different groups seize the opportunity to try to make the best of the situation. And the people who are best able to seize power in a situation like that are, are those people who are the best armed. And some of them, in part because of that, that lack of any central authority, the desire to resort to violence, it became sometimes a bloodbath. I mean, yes, disemboweling and so forth. Some of the worst cases, though, are ones in which the, the ones with the uh, Huahau, because when uh, in the Huahau case, the communists inadvertently killed the prophet Huinfusho, who's very revered in the Western Mekong Delta as a, you know, a reincarnation of the Jade Buddha. And when he was killed, the Hua Hao peasant reaction to that was absolutely stunning. I mean, it was just people with rudimentary weapons going up against uh, people with guns. I mean, but they were just going in there and, and just killing, killing, killing their opponents because they thought that these were the people who had killed their prophet. That's even a different kind of violence. It's just almost like an atavistic or a, a rage sort of, uh, you know, against what, what communist-led resistance had done, even if inadvertently. Another theme that runs through the book, particularly in the second part of the book, is the question of sovereignty in the South. And you write that this becomes increasingly important when the French start to realize, as it were, that there's no going back to the old colonial model. But this the whole question of sovereignty and, and citizenship seems to create a great deal of uncertainty for the, for the Vietnamese, for the Khmer, and for the Chinese, not, not to mention the French. Can you explain the significance of the issue of sovereignty in your book? Yeah. When I was researching this book, I often tried to put myself in a frame of mind where you don't really know the end the end result you know of history you don't know who's going to win the war and when you think about it if you're Vietnamese in 1945 or 19 you know 47 or something like that and you're thinking about how will things change if we become independent a lot of what we take for granted now in terms of citizenship for example was not really obvious to give an example would chinese got a particular status would they become citizens of vietnam or not what about ethnic minorities what about the khmer krom who were there <laughs> there in the south before the vietnamese so all these questions were up for negotiation and so that's one of the interesting issues how people work through, in a sense, these issues. The other one is that there's a strong tendency in the scholarship, this has been true for 70 years, looking at the, the rise of the state of Vietnam in particular, first came into existence in 1949, of thinking in many ways it's a joke. The French often called it like a guinea pig. It was a guinea pig government. It really wasn't independent in any way. You know, Sihanouk, when he was talking about Cambodia, which got its initial independence around the same time, you know, he, he talked about 50% independence. And so there's a tendency to think of the of this new rising state of Vietnam as some sort of ersatz state, as kind of not a real state. And in many ways, that criticism is, is perfectly correct. But the other thing that people haven't paid as much attention to is the fact that the French were experimenting as well 
with when they created the state, that they actually were trying to create something which is akin to the British Commonwealth. They were trying to create the French Union. And they had this idea that somehow you could create a state, like a state of Vietnam, which was part of a larger union. But what exactly this larger French Union was, wasn't quite clear. I mean, would authority be vested in the union and not in France? Would France be part of this union? I mean, all these things are up for grabs. And so there was a lot of thinking through what does it mean to give independence to a state within the French Union? To us today, that sounds not very clear, but a lot of these things are up up for grabs. Vietnamese generally, when they look at this, you know, the the first Indochina war, tend to completely discount the that first government, the the, uh, the state of Vietnam, and see the really the win at the triumph at Dinh Binh Phu as the uh, moment in which uh, the Vietnamese actually won, in a sense, their state. But there is this earlier issue with the state of Vietnam in the south, and the, the state of Vietnam in the south became the core of what would be a reasonably effective state with outside intervention at the Republic of Vietnam. Uh, it was a, it, it, which existed until 1975. So in one sense, we need to understand this, this odd sovereignty in, in terms of that state. But we also need to, and this is the other thing I talk about in the book, we need to not just look at it from a sort of a top-down national level perspective, but we need to think of sovereignty as it's actually practiced in the countryside. Because there, the state of Vietnam often had no impact whatsoever and so you have to look at de facto sovereignty, the way in which militias, for example, articulated a de facto notion of sovereignty, the way that sovereignty overlapped. I mean, it was very, very complicated, but much richer. And I think what it does in part is it helps us think when we think through decolonization, we're not just talking about like you, you put on a flag and then you raise a flag, you sign a treaty and boom, you transfer sovereignty to someone else. It's actually a much more complicated process and a much more interesting process. Yeah, look, a thing I really liked about the book was the way that you kind of disrupt the usual periodization of this period of Vietnamese history. Everyone knows about the Ho Chi Minh's Declaration of Independence of 1945. Everyone knows about the French defeat at Dien Bien Phu in 1954. But in your book, you cover those events, but, but not in a huge amount of detail. You give a lot more importance to, as you say, that this double fracture in 1947 and, and 1949 is another key turning point. And, and you show, coming back to the question of sovereignty, how the French were devolving power to this state of Vietnam in the South as early as 1949. And it's not just or token. It's, uh, you can't, there's, there's a table you have in there of the administration of, of various departments which are handed over to, to Vietnamese. So, again, it sort of it changes our understanding of, the, as you say, the, the decolonization of the South. Right. And in part, what I think it, it underlines is that our existing narratives for the how, for example, the Vietnam is divided in two. The way it usually works is you have a, a northern-centered story that talks about what happens in the north in 1945, and it ends in the north in 1954. And the south is considered a backwater. It's considered not really significant in any way towards you know the, the the war as a whole or issues of sovereignty as a whole but in fact what happened in the south was very important for the south <laughs> and we need to recapture this even if people disagree with my arguments about sovereignty I'm happy to I mean I'm, I'm happy if people challenge in some way that but I think we need to we need to bring the south back in 
to our understanding of the war as a whole. Because it really was a very different kind of war, and uh, it led to the creation. It, it actually had an impact on the division of the country into two halves at the uh, Geneva Accords. Of course, the division of the country into north and south, is everyone knows about that, right? But uh, you argue, and that's of course that's important, but you argue that there's a, an earlier division, which is fundamentally important too, in 1949, when the French break up Indochina into these three parts, Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. And this has huge ramifications, particularly for the Khmer, but also uh, the Vietnamese in Cambodia, for example. Can, can you perhaps say a little bit about the, the significance of the breakup of French Indochina in 49? Yeah, it's, it's funny. People, we, there's a tendency not to pay much attention to it. And I think some authors have. Uh, Chris Gosha has talked about this some. But we need to put ourselves in, in the mind of people who, who, who are living at that time and realize that for most people in French Indochina, they had lived in a larger entity called French Indochina. And while there were borders between, uh, you know, between like Cambodia uh, and Cochin China, for example, or even between, you know, Cochin China and, uh, and, and the center of Vietnam, these were not national borders. They were administrative borders. That's it. And so people were used to crossing, crossing borders all the time. And then all of a sudden, 1949, these, uh, these borders come up and they're, they're now considered to be international borders. So what do you do? All of a sudden, people's practices have to change. But not surprisingly, when a, when a change comes from on high, people don't initially react as if, as if somehow, you know, Cambodia is a, is a foreign country. They continue crossing the borders. <laughs> and so over time, you have a process whereby there's an attempt to enforce borders, to make borders real. So that's one aspect of it. But it's also thinking like someone who no longer is part of French Indochina, but as you're now part of Vietnam, you're now part of Cambodia. So that process takes time as well to play out. When we think of you know, both conflicts in Vietnam, first, in, first and second Indochina wars, the, the heart of the conflict often gets, tends to be seen in terms of nationalism and communism. But you write that in, in the South, at least, religion was a crucially important factor. Uh, and it becomes a little bit more important, it seems, over time as well. Why was religion so important in that part of the country? Yeah, the religion definitely was more uh, more important in the South. And uh, it, I, what I will also say, and this links back to one of the early themes I bring up, is, the, is that of institutions. The the Kaudai, for example, the Kaudai religion, which is a new religion founded in 1926, it's, it's a very interesting religion. Its core is, is Buddhism, but it adds in other, other materials. Uh, it also w- was a relatively highly institutionalized religion with a clear governing structure. And during World War II, they also uh, collaborated with the Japanese and had their own militias. The Hua Hao, much less developed institutionally, but the Hua Hao Buddhists were particularly strong in the South. And the Hua Hao, the, uh, of course, their leader was a prophet, Huin Fusho. And the area in which they, they're, they're centered, that part of the Western Mekong Delta, is, is an area which has con- been considered, parts of it have been considered sacred in some way since uh, Khmer times. The, the Seven Mountains area, for example, all the places which are now major, like Wahau or, or even Vietnamese pilgrimage sites, most of those used to be well, they were Khmer. So the entire landscape in the South has been shaped by people who came before the uh, the Vietnamese. But these religious groups, 
Kaudai, Huahau, but also groupings, congregations of Catholics, which you find in certain parts of the Mekong Delta, Buddhists. These different groupings, some of them not as well institutionalized, some of them were well institutionalized. The best institutionalized ones were the ones who often played a strong role in the, uh, the struggle for the South. One of the arguments I make is that as the war goes on, you know, initially these religious groups are, are quite important in, in the war. But these confessional groups, as they go on, the authority bifurcates in two, into like religious authority and military authority. And increasingly what happens is the men of violence, the militia leaders, for example, they claim to belong to or work for like the Kaudai or the Huahau or the Catholics, but they really are not doing so with the 100% approval of religious leaders. They're men of violence. Uh, they, they will defend believers, but essentially they're in it as in order to, to, to strengthen their own authority. And so this process of militarization happens even with the religious groups. It happens with the, it happens with the communists. And overall, you see an ebbing of religious impact towards the end, certainly towards the end of the conflict. But yeah, these militias are affiliated with different confessional groups. And so this is something which is completely unlike what you see in the north of Vietnam. There are so many surprises in in the book. One really nice example, which kind of gives you a sense of how globalized the conflict was, even in the first Indochina war, you write about some famous or maybe infamous African dictators who, who actually served in the French colonial forces in Vietnam in the 1940s and the 1950s. Right. I remember, believe it or not, what clued me in on this was I was uh, talking to a, uh, a, a Vietnamese scholar who uh, is a professor of religion, was professor of religion in D.C., and he mentioned how one time he was uh, – he's a Catholic, a Catholic priest and a scholar. He mentioned one time how he was, he was in, I think, the Central African Republic, and he walks into a place that's, that's uh, selling you know, chaya, the, uh, the Vietnamese dish, and he looks up and a, uh, he goes in. And a person starts speaking to him in Vietnamese in the Central African Republic. <laughs> and so it turns out that the person's mother was, uh, was Vietnamese. Father was, was African. And so I started digging into this issue because I knew that there were a good number of, of people from uh, – soldiers from Africa who fought in French Indochina. And some of them, like the Emperor Bokassa. Emperor Bokassa was uh, infamous for you – know, he was basically – and of his life, I think, he was mentally unstable. But he was a dictator, and he had fought in the South. And there were other people as well. There, there were at least four dictators in, in French West Africa who had spent some of their time fighting in Vietnam. And I think this link, this, this is part of it is you don't know if, the, what, if Vietnam had this uh, a great impact. It's certainly true that their experience in the French military, both in Vietnam and then sometimes in North Africa, had a, a deep impact on these individuals. If we could perhaps zoom out a little bit here, when the when North Vietnam finally defeated the South in seventy five, you could argue it also took control of the narrative of Vietnamese history, which you argue in the book is a northern narrative, and ironically, even in the West, which you know fought to defend South Vietnam, the history of the South is is largely unknown. I think you could say, when you were writing the book, was it your intention to kind of to, to draw attention to this distinct history of the South? It was my intention to do that. I mean, when I first began to do the research on the book, there wasn't much on the South uh, that was being written. The Western scholars actually were 
were definitely much more northern oriented. In recent years, actually, there's been more and more scholarship on the South because obviously, you know, as historians, we we see an area where nobody's doing something and, and you, you go to it, right? You, you want to look at it. And so this has happened more recently. But some of the uh, scholarship is very new and some of it is just coming into uh, is now just being published. But mine, I was frustrated. I've been frustrated for a long time by this narrative, this post-1975 narrative of Vietnam, because I think that it doesn't, it doesn't all capture the reality and the difference of the South. And part of that narrative, if you go and look at the Vietnamese language materials, you'll find, for example, the uh, all publications of Vietnam are approved by the state, essentially. And they all say that the uh, the communists won the war for the South uh, by 1945. All of them say this. And it's astonishing because, in my argument, I, I don't see how that can be true. But they say this. And so there's a generation of Vietnamese who've grown up thinking, well, you know, I mean, we thank goodness for reunification, but especially since we won the, the, the first Indochina war in the South, but it didn't. And what it's also meant has been that the certain voices from the, that earlier period have been marginalized. And some individuals who play a, a pretty important role in the book, like, for example, this rustic peasant, Chan Van Suai, I mean, he, he's basically a militia leader. Um, he was very, very important. He was very important in the war, but he's almost completely faded into obscurity. And there are a lot of others like that who people in the area know about. People living in the Mekong Delta know about, but in terms of a national level narrative, uh, many of these persons are are not talked about. And there's one person in particular who I, I the the Huahao prophet Huynh Phu Sho, I give a, an extensive discussion of how he was killed, and what I say was his his scam or sham his sham trial. And the reason I do that is that. Up until the present, his death has been a very, very sore point for Hua Hao believers. And the, in Vietnam, usually his death is always kind of uh, papered over or explained away or blamed part of it on the French. And I mean, there are all sorts of stories around that. And it's unfortunate because, you know, I mean, the reality is that, that this individual was indeed killed by someone associated with the Viet Minh. We don't still know who. But little things like that are going to be very important to particular communities in Vietnam. I mean, what I've written is the most, I think, the most persuasive argument for how he died in any publication anywhere. And little things like that can add up and help us change sort of our, you know, the narrative of the uh, narrative of Vietnamese history. I know that your book has only just come out this year, but I was wondering if you'd had any reactions to it from Vietnamese readers, either in the U.S. or or in Vietnam. Not yet. I mean, I think it's funny. There's a positive reaction to people I know who, who have read it because it's only been out for a few months now. Part of that is because there are those individuals who are Southerners and who, or who are in the Vietnamese diaspora abroad, I think are glad to see a book which does not repeat the usual narrative about, about war, does not call all Southern Vietnamese puppets of the French, you know, that kind of thing. So there's that argument. Within Vietnam, I have no idea yet. And it'll be interesting to see how it's treated. What, what I assume is this book will never be translated into Vietnamese. It's too, it's was, too sensitive. That was going to be my next question, whether there are any plans to have the book translated, but uh, you seem to have answered that. 
Yeah. No, I uh, I think that there are some parts of it which, uh, well, what sometimes happens is books are translated into, and I would simply demand that the entire book be translated or nothing at all, because I, I've seen plenty of examples in which basically text is cut out of a translation or things are moved around, and uh, I wouldn't want that to happen. Before we conclude, we have a traditional question we ask all our interviewees. Are you working on a, a new project, and what might that project be? Yes, I'm working on a project which at first glance may seem to be completely different from this one. I'm working on Vietnamese engagements with Theravada Buddhism. And ironically, it comes out of the fact that during the war, there, there were certain individuals who combined Theravada and Mahayana Buddhism. One of them actually uh, is killed. And I mentioned this in the book. But it's Min Dang Quang. But I, over the years, I've, become, I've long been interested in Buddhism. And I, I thought, huh, it'd be interesting to look at how Vietnamese interacted with, with Theravada Buddhism. And it turns out Cambodia is actually quite important in that process. And so I'm looking at individuals who are Vietnamese who converted to Theravada Buddhism, Vietnamese who combined Theravada and Mahayana into a new amalgam, and those people who are Mahayana Buddhists who decided they want to learn more about uh, uh, Theravada Buddhism in order to improve their own understanding of Buddhism. And so this is a book, though, I'm, not a, I'm going to contextualize it in these violent relations between Cambodia and Vietnam. So a lot of what I read about happens, you know, in, in the, the book's going to cover like 1930 to 1990 or so. But it's going to be both a social history of that relationship on the one hand, but that's the context, but it's also going to look at doctrinally at what the issues are. And I've become really, really interested in Vietnamese engagements with, with Khmer culture, and in particular, but not always realizing that it is, I mean, Khmer culture. It's a fascinating topic. So yes, I'm working on that. You might think, what's the connection to this last work? Uh, is there any connection? There, there is some connection because Buddhists do pop up all the time, in, in, but periodically in, in this book. But it's also a topic which, as you probably, you know, you, you certainly know, Vietnamese are never talked about when we talk about the Theravada world, sometimes with the exception of, of Khmer Chrome. So there's a giant gap, and I'm interested in this. It's what the Vietnamese call, I should add here, Vietnamese often call this a search for original Buddhism. Um, so it doesn't just involve Cambodia. It also involves Thailand. It also involves Sri Lanka and so forth. But it's it's a major reorientation of Vietnamese Buddhism. And I think, yes, this is something that's worth looking at. What an exciting project. I kind of get the sense that uh, Buddhist studies in Southeast Asia right now is a really vibrant uh, area to be in. Sean McHale, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss your book, the First Vietnam War, Violence, Sovereignty and the Fracture of the South, 1945 to 1956, published this year by Cambridge University Press. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about it. And you've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks, everyone, for listening in. If you enjoy this episode, then you might also be interested in listening to other podcasts about books that deal with with the modern history of Vietnam, and in particular, South Vietnam, like Chris Gosch's Vietnam, A New History, or Olga Draw's Making Two Vietnam's War and Youth Identities, 1965 to 1975. You can download or stream these interviews and thousands more free of charge via the New Books Network website or iTunes. 